what a great passage of scripture. <laughs> and we just covered just a couple verses, didn't we? I want to greet you as well to our guests. My name's Tim. Thank you so much for being here this morning, joining with us in worship of our great God. Uh, looks like we could have maybe got it in outside, but um, uh, we'll try again next week. So bring your chair, bring your lunch next week. We'll be outside, Lord willing. And uh, then the week after that, we'll be moving to our two services, all right? So just want to encourage you, if you weren't here last week in regards to that, just feel like um, it's getting a little crowded in here on some Sundays, and we'd like to leave some room in the building to continue to, to add folks. So uh, the first service will take place at 9 o'clock. The second service will take place at 10.45, 9 o'clock, 10.45. There will be a 20-minute prayer meeting in between. So we would like to see the first service stick around, hang around. We'll be in the gathering room. Second service, come a little early, all right? And let's pray together um, during that time. Looking forward to that. All right, so um, the title this morning, God Will Rend the Heavens, all right? So if you didn't hear last week... You need to go back, go to our website, listen to last week, um, because that was, that was the prayer last week. God, rend the heavens and come down. Chapter 64, or excuse me, chapter 65 is, is, is really the reply. God absolutely will rend the heavens and he will come down. He will return for his bride, his church, once again. That's where we're headed this morning. Now, maybe you heard before we dive into the text that a little something happened this week. A little election thing happened this week. Now, I want you to imagine any president, any president making good on all of his or her promises. It's never happened. It never will happen. In my lifetime, I can't remember a time when our country has been so incredibly divided. And so often when you look across our country, so too is the church so divided. And I want to thank you, Trinity. This is why it's important for us as a church to fight for the unity of the faith. That we would walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ by which you have been called. Worthy walking according to the gospel is a unified walking. We preach that another time, but we've got to keep primary things primary at Trinity and secondary things secondary at Trinity. We can disagree on a whole lot of things. We can disagree on a lot of things, but we cannot disagree on God's word, its authority in our lives, and on the gospel of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. We cannot disagree there. That is the hill. If we are called to die on a hill, that's the hill we want to die on. And, and we may be called to die on that hill. I do believe that church life is going to get more and more difficult in the next four years. 
uh, I say that to say to you, not to scare you, but to say to you, decide today who you will serve. The time to decide who you will serve is not when things really ramp up and it gets more difficult for the church. The time to decide who you will serve is today. Decide who you will serve, God or man, God or government, God or culture. If the culture demands that we not preach this book, we will preach this book. We have to. If the government demands that we not preach this book, we will continue to preach this book. All right? Say, well, what about Romans 13? Romans 13 instructs us to submit to governing governing authorities. We desire to do so. We must not do so if man's authority demands we disobey God's authority. So decide today, determine now, not when it happens, who will you serve? Now, guess what? A president, a government, is unable to accomplish what we all long for. It's not created to do so. What do we long for? We long for peace. We long for virus-free world, right? We, we long for uh, an end to sex trafficking. We long for unity across the land. We We long for evil to be eradicated. Guess what? A president, a government cannot accomplish all that. What what I just described to you is heaven. We will have to die to experience all of what I just described to you. But there's that longing in our hearts for heaven. All people long for peace and health, uh, COVID-free world, ease, and yet we're powerless to create it. The moment we figure out the whole vaccine thing, welcome to COVID-2020. Good news. Though we are powerless to accomplish it, that's why Isaiah 65 lives. That's how it exists. That's where it lives in your Bible and in our lives. It lives to tell us. It lives to encourage us. It lives to remind us God and God alone will do this. He will accomplish what no man can accomplish. God is saying through Isaiah, I will rend the heavens and come down. He came once, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose again, did some pretty amazing things. Just as he came the first time, know this, God, Jesus will come again for his bride and he will accomplish this peace that you long for. He will come again and we will live in heaven for eternity. But for now, until that time, we need to ask some questions this morning. We need to ask some questions about heaven Specifically, who will be there? How do you get there? And what will it be like? Before we dive in, let's pray. Father God, give us help and grace. Your Spirit's anointing, we pray, in the preaching of your word. Amen. 
Chapter 64, last week's sermon, it's a wasteland. That's the picture. But chapter 64 is not the end of the story. We still have chapter 65, and next week we'll preach chapter 66, and we will come to a conclusion in this series in Isaiah in which we began in September of 2019. Heaven, who will be there? How do you, how do you get there, and what will it be like? We begin with who will be there? Now, sometimes you got to preach to the church. You, sometimes you preach to believers. Um, how do I put? All of us need to hear once again simple truths, truths that perhaps you've heard for a very long time. We need to be reminded of truth. We need to be reminded who, who will be there. And as we're being reminded, I just want to encourage everybody in the room, and if you're watching via the live stream, that we'd be evaluating our hearts. That we'd just not be assuming things and uh, be in a hurry to rush off to lunch. I want to encourage church kids who are in the room. Church kids, you need to hear this this morning as well. So who will be there? You know what? Let's start by noting in chapter 65, verses 1 and 2, the willingness or even the eagerness of God. Did you hear it as Richard was reading that? I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. Wow, that right, right there is amazing. God was ready to be sought by those, by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name, meaning the Gentiles, right? I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good following their own devices. Before, before we go anywhere, I just want us to see the willingness, the eagerness, the leaning in of your God towards us because it doesn't paint a very good picture about who we are here. Unwilling, rejecting him. Why, while we believe here at Trinity in the sovereignty of God in salvation, we also believe that if anyone is not saved, it's because man, women rejected him. Reject his offer of salvation. Reject his appeals that we see here in verses 1 and 2. You see, God is not a reluctant Savior. The problem is not with God. The problem is people. People are reluctant to humble themselves and repent and trust in him for salvation. Recognize all that God has done. When you read verses 1 and 2, do so later on today. Read it again and just consider all that God has done to say, here I am, here I am to a people who continue to reject. Just consider all that he's done to spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people. Just consider that later on. I was in a coffee shop conversation a couple weeks ago with an individual who was very talkative. He was cursing throughout. He was somewhat confusing in the conversation, and yet he was extremely friendly, a friendly guy, and we had a really good conversation. He shared with me that he, 
that he was um, raised uh, Catholic, Catholic school, Catholic family. But he began to share with me just the harshness of the nuns that he engaged with and the corruption of the priests. The priests who either did wicked things or looked the other way when wicked things were done. It seemed that he had been hurt in his younger years, and all of that was forming what was now his worldview. His worldview was basically this. I will be going to heaven because I pray every day. Before I leave the house, I pray God help me today. Number two, because I'm friendly to strangers, clearly I was that stranger. And number three, because I'm not like those wicked priests who are bad and they will go to hell. That was his worldview. And was able to engage with that a bit. It's a popular worldview today. Good people go to heaven. Bad people go to hell, don't they? But who gets to define who are the good people? And who defines who are the bad people? In this case, this gentleman was defining that. Basically, whoever's having the conversation, that person defines who's good and who's bad and determines then, based on their definition of good and bad, determines who goes to heaven. Who gets to determine who's bad and who's good? Well, I do. (laughs) Of course. I'm the measure. I'm the standard that determines who's good and who's bad. And I've yet yet to meet a person who would say, I'm a good person and I'm going to hell. And I get it. You know what? This morning, these things, they can be hard to talk about and be, be honest about. I hope you hear me seeking to be honest with you. But hear this. Your opinion on this And my opinion on this doesn't carry any weight. It just really doesn't matter what we think about these things. What is your your opinion on these? What matters is what does God think on these things? What is his opinion of these things? Because ultimately, he's the one who determines who's good and who's bad. Who goes to heaven, who goes to hell. Who will, be in, who will be in heaven? Or who, another way to put it is, who deserves heaven this morning? Who's done enough good things to get to heaven? Clearly, my friend in the coffee shop would say, I've done enough good things to get to heaven. I pray every day. I talk to friendly, I, I t- I'm friendly to strangers. And I'm not bad like those priests that I grew up with. How many good things do we need to do for us to get to heaven? How often do we need to do these good things to get to heaven? If I go to church, is that enough? If I give in the offering, is that enough? Maybe if I throw some prayer at it as well, is that enough? You know, the Bible addresses all of these questions. They're appropriate questions. And I would encourage you, I won't be able to answer all the questions this morning that you might have in the room or on the live stream. Please feel free. It's a good coffee conversation would love to have that conversation and for you to ask open and honest I'm struggling questions 
as it relates to these things. But here's the deal. Verses 1 through 3 is showing us, are you ready? No one's good. No one's good. Look, th this is the Lord making himself available to a people. I spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people. The point isn't, I spread out my hands to, let me find those good people out there. I spread out my hands to the good ones. I make myself available. I seek after those who are the good ones. No, the, in the beauty of the gospel, the mercy of your God is he sought after you, not because you were good. He sought after you as a rebel. Who deserves to go to heaven? According to verses one through three. Well, no one, no one. That's what makes worship, worship. When you recognize, I don't deserve this mercy. I don't deserve God's grace, but praise be to God. I am a recipient of grace. Let's worship our God. How does the New Testament put it? Well, it would say things like this, Romans three. None is righteous. No, no, no not one. Paul to the Romans, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they've become worthless, no, no one does good, not even one. Isaiah 64, was a few weeks back, there is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses, rouses himself to take hold of you. A few months back, Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way. Now what's amazing What's amazing is not that we're all sinners, not that we're all undeserving. What's amazing about verses 1 and 2 is the posture of God towards undeserving sinners. It's amazing. Verse 3, again, a people who provoke me to my face continually sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on, on bricks. It's a picture of worship. They're sacrificing. They're making offerings. This is, this is God's people. This, this quote unquote, right? This, these are the good guys. These are God's people. These are, these are the good ones, if you will. The problem is, when it's talking about sacrificing in gardens, making offerings on bricks, is they're worshiping other gods. And they're being, they're literally being religious about it. Um, now, lest we think, yeah, oh, dumb Israelites, like what's wrong with you? Like this is us, right? This, this is us. It's not that they weren't religious, they were religious. As a matter of fact, they were not only religious towards the false gods, they were also religious towards God himself. God, God says earlier in the book, like I'm tired of your offerings. Your sacrifices, like they're a stench to me. What, what's that? Like well, they were religious. They, they had no heart for God. Let's just, let's just line up all the gods. Let's make sure we make sacrifices to all of them. And the reason that we're doing that is we want some kickback here. We want some benefit. I mean, that's what religion's about, right? Like why would anybody pursue a religious life if there's no kickback from God? It's not that they weren't religious. It's that they wanted God on their own terms. And we do the same today. We make gods out of our hobbies. 
We sacrifice to them. We make offerings. Don't fool yourself. You tithe. You tithe to your God. We all tithe to what it is that we worship. We are givers. We, we are lavish givers to that which we worship. We all are. We make offerings to our gods. It's when these hobbies or these things have a hold on our affections, on our, on our hearts, that we've made these gods to be God in our lives. And we want something from those gods. Those, those hobby gods, they, they need to deliver me some comfort, some ease. I'll continue to tithe to my false gods, right? We're religious about it. So let's not self-righteously look at these guys and go, oh, pathetic. What are they doing here? Verse 4, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places. It's a picture. It's probably they're seeking wisdom from the dead. It's a mess. And this is Israel. Remember, quote, unquote, these are the good guys. Verse 5, see if you note any self-righteousness here. Who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. Keep your distance. Don't want you to rub off on me. Self-righteous, self-righteous about their religious activity. They were thinking, we're the good guys. Now, religion is dangerous. Religious activity creates this, I'm better than you attitude. Look at all my activity. Clearly, I'm the one getting it done. You need to be more like I am. I can feel holy. It can, it can feel righteous because of all the things that I might be doing. So who will go to heaven? This world's worldview is all the good people. Problem is, we need Scripture's view. And Scripture shows us there is none who are good which leaves us in a dilemma. Will the, will the religious go to heaven? Religion will save no one. And it gets worse. All right, it gets worse. Verse six, behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord. Because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills. This is the false worship taking place on the mountaintops where they thought if they get high on the mountains, Baal would hear. I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. Thus says the Lord. Well, let me pause there for a moment. Thinking they were good. God is saying, I will repay you for your sin, for your iniquity. These are sobering verses, church. These verses right here, hear me, they ought to slow us down. We move too quickly here. It should slow us down. It should sober us. We should, we, we should be in awe, a holy fear, sober evaluation. God is saying here that he will repay you for your iniquities, for your sin. He will bring justice Right? Like, what a word, what a word for 2020, right? Like, we want social justice. No, you don't. This is justice. 
This is what man has earned and deserves. All humanity. I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap. Both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord. Let there be a holy awe. The New Testament would put it like this, right? Romans 3, again. The wages of sin is death. You will be paid. This is what, you've, this is what your sin has earned. It's earned death. Well, if this sounds incredibly hopeless, at this point it is. It should feel that way. It means you're listening. We are all verses 1 through 5, not good. We are all verses 6 through 7, thinking we are good, thinking we're better than those people. We are all under the judgment of God, awaiting the day when our sins will be repaid us. Paul actually quotes verses 1 and 2 in Romans 10. Romans 10 and 11, he's, Paul is in anguish because of the Jews, because of because of his, his bloodline, his people. God's people were rejecting God and he's literally in anguish over it. And, and as, as you read through those two chapters, it's, it's this sense that they ought to know better. They have a distinct advantage. They have a, they have a history. They have a legacy. They, this, this is our this is our bloodline. We are the chosen people of God, and yet most of them are rejecting Christ, and that's why Paul is in complete anguish. And Paul is saying by quoting Isaiah that the Jews they didn't lack information. They had all the information. It's that they were rebellious. They were stubborn in their rebellion. They didn't want. God. They, they wanted a token God. They wanted a God that they could control, that a God that would give them their every whim. And so the irony is that those who had access, those who had information, rejected God. And the Gentiles who knew nothing of God, who didn't have access, who remained distant from the temple, right? The disadvantage they came to God. And the big takeaway in these verses, verses 1 through 7, is the issue is not with God. The issue is with us. And religion muddies it up. It muddies up the waters because religion feels like we're making our way, aren't we, to heaven. A lot of religious people doing a lot of religious things will not get there. So we need to ask, number two, how does one get to heaven? If we're not all good, if all of us are not good, and if God is going to repay us for our not good living, how does one get to heaven? Some would say, it sounds like no one's going to heaven. Others would say, well, that can't be true. God's a loving, forgiving God. We all know that. So everyone's going to heaven. Look at verse eight. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster and they say, do not destroy it for there is a blessing in it. So I will do for my servant's sake and not destroy them all. Now I struggled with verse eight 
what in the new wine and cluster. This is my best attempt. The new wine, right, it's not the best wine. Now, I don't know a whole lot about wine, but I know that much, right? Like, order the older wine. The older wine's the better wine. The new wine is cheap wine. Literally, it's cheap wine. It's inexpensive wine. Why? Because it's new. But the older you get, right, like, costs more. There's more value to the old wine because it's better. New wine is bitter. New wine is cheap. You kind of didn't finish the glass. Toss it out. Not a big deal. But you're not throwing away that old wine. (laughs) Even if you're not a wine drinker like myself and wouldn't know a good wine from a bad wine, I'm not throwing away that one because, wow, that was expensive. Right? So either toss out the new wine or let it sit until you're dead and gone, but don't drink it. Here God is saying, no, that new wine, hear me, that new salvation, don't toss that out. God takes what is worthless and he brings value. He brings glory to himself through that. So wonderful, great, what does that have to do with how do I get to heaven, right? Well, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the answer to that question is you get to heaven by the grace of God alone. It's through faith in, through faith in Christ by grace alone. The grace of God alone saves you. So let me ask you this, back back to verse eight at the end there. So I will do for my servant's sake and not destroy them all. What did you read in the text that told you that makes sense? Answer, nothing. Nothing. Why? Why will he not destroy them all? Did we miss something in here that, you know, the the rebel has repented? Did we miss something that in all the religious activity that God is going to you know, not repay their iniquities, but to, to say, hey, it looks like you're doing a good job. There's nothing in the text to indicate that. When you get to verse 8b, it should cause us to go, whoa, <laughs> wow, this is mercy. Nobody on the page deserves verse 8b, so I will do for my servant's sake and not destroy them all. Let's go further. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it. My servants shall dwell there. Wait, what what happened? That we'd find ourselves there. Rebels deserve judgment, but God gives grace to rebels. Ephesians, for by grace you have been saved, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Got nothing to boast in today except for Jesus Christ and his mercy and grace poured out in our lives. So verses 1 through 7 shows us No one deserves heaven. Verse 8 shows us God gives grace and mercy. How do I get to heaven? By the grace and mercy of God. No one gets to heaven 
by earning it. No one gets to heaven by being good enough. Praise be to God. If you're, if you're morally honest with yourself this morning, you've not been good enough. You've already failed, and I promise you, you, you could say today, oh, I'm going to be good enough for the rest of my life. You won't be. Nobody's measuring up in their own efforts. Nobody's getting there by their own work. So how do you get to heaven? By the grace and mercy of God. You can't do enough good things to erase all the sin in your life. Religion will not save you. Grace is the only way to heaven. And that's why we say by grace alone. Grace is free. It's freely given. But here's the thing. It costs. It's free to you. The grace of God is free to you. But it wasn't free. It cost our Savior's life. He died on the cross to make grace available to you and I. Grace is the only way to heaven. It's by grace alone. It's free to you. That's not to say it didn't cost. It cost everything. That Jesus would come and live a perfect life and die on the cross. He's dying on the cross to offer you. It's here, here I am, here I am. My arms are wide open to you. His arms remain open to you this morning. This, this sermon is an appeal to you to repent of your sins and to trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins because grace is the only way to heaven. Say, I'm working really hard here. I'm doing really good things. I'm better. I'm doing more good things than the next guy. I'm certainly not that guy. I'm certainly not that priest, perhaps, or whatever it might be for us. And the response from the text is he will repay you for your iniquities. The wages of sin is death. Listen to the grace found in the passage. Listen again, verse 8b. So I will do my ser- for my servant's sake and will not destroy them all. Listen, listen to the, all the I wills. Actually, if you go back through the whole passage and just circle all the times I is speaking. It would be, it's a, that's a good exercise. I will do, I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it and my servants shall dwell there. That's grace. I will do, I will not destroy. Offspring. You're an offspring. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are an offspring. That's why the New Testament will instruct us that we are to cry out to Abba, Father. Why? Because you're a child of God. You're an offspring. What, what, what produced that offspring? The cross of Christ. It was the point. Again, we preached it months ago, but Isaiah 53, it's the death of Christ that produces an offspring. Christ died. His death produces faith 
in us, where when we say it's through faith, it is placing our faith in Jesus Christ. It's, it's saying, I will trust in Jesus that your death paid that verse, what? Verse, verse six, I will repay, indeed, repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities. Faith says, I'm trusting Jesus received that payment. That's what the cross is. He received the payment for sins. The wages of sin is death. It's always been death. It always will be death. For those who trust in Christ, they're trusting that Christ received the death that our sins deserved. That's the gospel. That's what we celebrate here every Sunday at Trinity. That's what we will continue to celebrate at Trinity. It's the hill we want to die on. Offspring or what the Bible would call, in other places, new life, offspring. You're born again, offspring. You're a new creation. You're a child of God. You see, Christianity is not a little religious thing. It's a transformation through and through. You were once darkness, and now you are light. So how do you get to, get to heaven? By repenting of your sin. God, forgive me of my sin, and I trust you, Jesus, that you took my place on the cross. I'm putting my faith there. I'm banking my eternity on Christ and on that cross. He died in your place, in your stead. He stood. That's what we mean by faith, faith that Jesus died in my place for my sins. And that's, friends, that's how you get there. You go, you go but what do I got to do? I got to work, right? You'll never earn your salvation through working. And so the point of 10 through 16 is that God must deal with those who reject him. Sin must be dealt with. If he doesn't deal with sin, he is not God. When you cry for justice, you're crying for God. God is justice. We want justice as long as it's always out there, but right here, sin must be dealt with or he's not God and heaven is not heaven. Okay, let me unpack that for a minute. Many, most people continue to reject God today as they did in that day. That's verse 11, but for you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain. Verse 12, in the middle there, because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen, but you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. Why will some not be in heaven? Because they refused to listen and they rejected God. You want heaven? Listen. Listen to the word. Sin and heaven don't mix. They can't. They can't mix. The moment there is sin in heaven, it's no longer heaven. Sin spoils creation. That's where we live right now. Why, why do we have the messes that we have? It's because of sin. Why is there death? It's because of sin. Why is there COVID-19? It's because of sin. You name it, it's because of sin. We live in a sin-cursed world. Praise be to God, the cross redeems us. But it not only redeems you and me, it redeems all of creation. 
So there will be a new heaven, and there will be a new earth, and he will rend the heavens, and he will come down for his bride, and we will be with him in eternity. Amen. That's a long time. (laughs) Praise be to God. But not all will be saved. That's the point here. Not all will go to heaven. And all roads do not lead to heaven. Jesus is the only one who has paid for your sins. Listen, Buddha has not paid for your sins. Muhammad did not die for your sins. Never made the claim to do so. Only Christ has died for sinners. So repent of sin and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. Mary has not died for your sins. So salvation is nothing if there is no judgment. Saved from what? You're saved from the judgment of God. The righteous justice judgment of our great God. If there is no judgment, there is no salvation. The repentant are saved from the judgment of God. See, glory and judgment, hmm, it's, it's, it's odd, but they live side by side. They live there together in the Bible because where there is judgment in the text, there will be glory in the text because of the mercy and grace of God. If there was no judgment in the text, there would be no glory in the text. Glory is because judgment is. Glory exists in an ultimate glory sort of way because judgment exists. You can't have eternal and ultimate glory without eternal and ultimate judgment. What will heaven be like? Well, short answer, better than you can imagine. If the worship team would join me. I get a little nervous when I'm around a person who starts to explain emphatically, this is what heaven will be like. I don't know. Maybe. (laughs) I know this better than we can imagine. Yeah. This world right now here, like, I think it's pretty great. I'm annoyed with it too. I struggle with the mess of it too. But it's a great creation, isn't it? We all enjoy, that's why we enjoy vacations. That's why we go, that's why we travel places to see the glory of God. Whether, whether even as unbelievers, people do that, they just don't know it's the glory of God that they're looking at. It's a longing for heaven. That's why we vacation. How can we describe heaven? How can we describe sinlessness, right? Like we just don't have any category for that. How do we describe sick never to be sick again, right? Like, how do you describe there will be no death? Eternal. Please explain to me eternity. I'd love to hear that explanation, right? Like, has anybody made sense out of that yet? Like, no ending. No ending. So after 10,000 million, billion years, yeah, you name it, like, uh, yeah, we're just beginning. There's just no end. The Bible shows us that there'll be a new heaven and a new earth, a new creation, a redeemed creation. It'll be a recreated heaven and earth. It's not just that we're going to be up there. Like, like, I think we have more imagery in our minds from Saturday morning cartoons about what heaven is than we do from the word of God, right? Like, so no, we're not just going to be floating in the air, floating in the clouds, a bunch of professional harp, harp players. No. There will be glory, and actually I'll pause, and I will read to you the rest of our text 
as our benediction. Let's stand together and let's worship our God.